Our blessed God, almighty Savior, in Jesus' holy name we come, even this evening, Lord, to bow before you, to submit ourselves to you, to be refreshed even in this late hour of the day, Lord, in our spirits and our souls, that our hope would be nourished, that our faith would be strengthened, that our delight in your word, Lord, would increase, that our understanding, Lord, would become clearer as to the path, the way we should live. Lord, we pray that you would remove any, Lord, ignorance that is hampering us or hindering us from understanding some of these most basic rules and principles of the Christian life. We pray, O Lord, that above all of these things, before even our understanding, that we would love thy word. And understanding would then be the blessing of that love. Move in every heart, in every mind, Lord, in every home, to your glory and to our edification and good. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. We'll take and open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I'm going to continue uh, at this second service to open up Psalm 119, which I began weeks back, I'm not sure how long now, but we will continue just methodically walking through uh, that first eight verses, and I would like to read those eight verses in your hearing, beginning at verse one. Hear now the word of God. How blessed are those whose way is blameless and who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. And then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments and I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. And when I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes and do not forsake me utterly. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his work, Religious Affections. You may be familiar with that very popular work. On Psalm 119, he says these words. He says, I know no other part of the Holy Scriptures where the nature and evidence of true and sincere godliness are so fully and largely insisted on and delineated. And I could probably pull out dozens more comments similar to that, if not better, on Psalm 119, it's been volumes have been written on the psalm because of its practicality and its usefulness to God's people and to the Christian life. Well, this morning I want to this, this evening I want to continue 
looking at this concept, very important concept of happiness and how we get it. And in focusing on that, I want to, at the end of my lesson, address some of those things that are at least the negative aspects of happiness. But when you consider happiness in general, we all know that it is something the world desires. And when I say the world, I mean every person desires happiness, every class of person, no matter their stature. I mean, the poor, the rich, the young, the old, uh, everyone in their place desire a degree of happiness. They don't simply desire it, but they in their own way pursue that happiness. The doctrine this evening is this. Well, there is only one way to true happiness. There are not many ways to be happy. There's only one true way. There is only one way for true happiness. Now we must consider the nature of it as we look around us in order to understand the world that we live in, that this is something that people are ready to talk about. You can strike up any conversation you like when you sit down and you are asked someone the question, what makes you happy? And I'm sure you would get a variety of things, but I'm also sure that you would get things that are very common to each other. A lot of times it's family, it's friendships, it's companionships, it's children, it's marriage, it's um, wealth, the ability to, to be able to fix your car when it's broken without having to save up for months to fix some minor repair. It's being able to put food on the table or even at times have celebrations which cost money. And we can certainly testify to the current uh, economic situation we find ourselves in as a nation that it's become increasingly more expensive to have get-togethers where you might provide food for 15 or 20 people. Things are double, if not triple, and it costs money to do that. But this blessedness, beloved, has been set before us from the very beginning. This happiness, this blessedness that the psalmist is speaking of here goes all the way back to the very beginning of time. I have done my best to set before you, particularly on Wednesday nights, this very, very important concept and how God uses this desire for happiness to motivate us for righteousness. Go back to the very covenant of works where there is this reward laid out there if they do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is good. 
Everlasting life is is forward in that promise. If you do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall live forever and live in communion with your God forever. It is coupled with that of punishment. That is, there is both an excitement of what we desire and what we don't want. Death. Hell. Eternal punishment. These are things, beloved, no one desires. You can talk to a multitude of people and you can witness to them and they will often confess to you if you've done much evangelizing, they don't want to go to hell. And they will say, I desire to go to heaven. I would like to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. And I'm going to speak more about that later on in the lesson. Just setting before you the desire, the, the, the desire that is prevalent among all men. I mean, look at Look at Genesis 6. Beginning at verse 1, it said, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And when the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts and of his heart were only evil continually. If we couple that passage of that time frame, that time period with Matthew chapter 24, we get a glimpse of this idea of of pursuit of happiness, but with a very serious flaw. In verse 36 of Matthew chapter uh, 24, our Lord in this Olivet Discourse says, but on the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, I'm not going to highlight the emphasis of the coming and the return of the Lord there, but only highlighting the idea of those benefits, those things that people seek after, marriage. 
giving and drinking, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. I mean, these are all good things. There's nothing evil in and of in them in and of themselves. The problem is if we go back and we study Noah, we understand that they did all of that in the apostasy of the giver of those gifts. It was the desire for the giving the benefits, those things that we partake of, those blessings that God bestows, those sweet kisses of God to his children that we can participate in and enjoy greatly, and they enhance our lives. They enhance our fellowship with one another. They enhance the quality of our lives. And here you have people apostatizing the sons of God desiring the daughters of men, mixed marriages. That's not ethnic mixture, but ethical mixture. Believers marrying unbelievers. And then you become, these benefits become highlighted along with all of these other things that God graciously and kindly gives over to society, even in common grace, and you have apostasy wickedness and i'm going to talk about why that ends why it ends up that way the indulgence of these benefits apart from the giver of those benefits is dangerous when we seek and pursue happiness beloved we must do it the right way we must make sure that we follow after the commandments of the word of God and in Psalm 119 that tells us that there is only one way to this happiness and that's what we must pursue. Paul argues even in Acts chapter 17 and verse 27 of these fruitful seasons that there is this universal good and inclination that men enjoy in this world but they enjoy for all the wrong reasons. And it doesn't benefit them in the long run. In fact, I would argue it really doesn't even benefit them in the short term because, well, I'm going to get to the cause in a minute. God implanted in us affections. We were made that way. These affections were to help us pursue good and avoid evil. No one wants to be sad. No one rushes to danger without good cause, right? None of us choose to have a miserable life. It's not something we would choose for ourselves. And even Thomas Manton on his commentary on Psalm 119, he says, he says this, he says, God has implanted in us affections of aversion to avoid what is evil, so affections of choice to pursue and follow after that which is good. Well, then, out of principle of self-love, all would be happy. We would have good, and they would have it forever. Now, we all understand that even though we obtained for ourselves what we determined to be good, because we do have a degree 
of love for ourselves. We know that it don't always turn out the way we think it should turn out. Particularly apart from that saving grace of faith. And that's my second point. Now my first point is all seek it. And they all seek it for the they all seek the benefits of this life in the pursuit of happiness. It is natural. The problem is it lacks that which is necessary for it not to be destructive. And that's my second point, which is faith. Apart from God's grace, the grace of faith, happiness is easily counterfeited. It's easy to mistake common good for true happiness when you do not have God's grace dwelling in you. Now let's unpack that point a little bit. That is, apart from God's grace, beloved, we are unable to see the danger certain things present to us. I mean, what's the danger of enjoying the enjoyment of good things? Well, the danger is neglecting the giver. The danger is the the insatiable desire for those things apart from other responsibilities and duties that often happen when one pursues their own pleasure, right? And that is an inordinate amount of time and resources spent on those things that make us happy cannot be good for us in, in the short term or long term. You know, I could illustrate this in any number of ways. I think this would be an easy one. Illustrated in a real in a real sense. As a employer who has employed many, many people over the years, it is I have often employed that class of person that is paid on Friday and broke on Monday. You, you see the picture. Why are they why are they broke on Monday? Why are they in need of borrowing money on Monday to just get through the week? Because they've spent an inordinate an excessive amount of their earnings upon that which brought them pleasure versus taking responsibility and budgeting their money out and living within their means. And it's a destructive it's a destructive practice to them because over time they wear the employer out. Over time they wear their their all their good graces out and they typically have to leave that job that often paid them well and go and pursue other jobs that may pay just as well or may not. And so you can begin to see even in that that realistic illustration what the destructive nature of these pursuits without faith without having those spiritual eyes to see and understand what really is involved in these blessings and how we are to pursue the giver rather than the giving of what he gives us Uh, look at luke 16 Luke 16 teaches us that there are, I mean, that these things are 
are, are good in this life. There are good things in life. Um, I, I mean, I'm not speaking outside of the biblical understanding of what God has commonly and graciously given, not just to us, but everyone. And in Luke 16, let's see, verse 20. Verse, let's see, 25, is that it? Look at verse 25. Well, look, look, this is the rich man and Lazarus. We know the rich man was extremely wealthy, and he enjoyed immensely his wealth to the extent that he passed by this poor beggar at his gate and neglected him. Now, you can imagine, I'm not, I don't need to go into all of the very aspects of social responsibility, but look at verse 25. Now, they both die. The beggar and, and uh, uh, the rich man die. The beggar is in paradise with Abraham. The rich man is in Hades. And look at verse 25. And Abraham said... And he's talking to the rich man. He said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Now, what does the inspired word of God tells us? That these things that the rich man had at his disposal were not bad. There is nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with the enjoyment of friends. There's nothing wrong with barbecues. There's nothing wrong with having, uh, you know, uh, uh, parties at your home. That's not what, that's not the point Abraham is making. What he is saying is, but when these things are participated in without grace in one's heart, that of faith, that they become idols and their own gods and they prove to be destructive. And that's the way it ends, isn't it? It ends with his destruction. They seek happiness through riches, honor, and various forms of pleasure. And all of these things, beloved, are in and of themselves, there's just nothing wrong with it. In fact, when we have barbecues, I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a custom habit. Or it's a habit to acquire it, um, if you don't have it. But when you're having get-togethers, I mean, when you're just enjoying company, um, it's a great time to offer up thanksgiving to God. It's just a great time to, to take a moment and just thank God for these friendships, these family members, and the good things that he has laid out on this table, the bounty he's provided. And, and it's a habit that we should develop and cultivate because we want to continue to impress upon our hearts and minds, right, the, the greatness of our God and the graciousness of our God and how our God is so giving and so interested in our own happiness that we ought to take the time to acknowledge it to recognize it, to give testimony for it, right? Thank you, Lord, 
We don't deserve these things. There are many people without. And I think it's important to to be mindful of not spending our time um, agonizing because we have the good things of God. And I don't talk about guilt manipulation. That if other people in in the town cannot eat, we will not eat. If there's other countries that are poor and beggarly, well, we should not eat. We should not enjoy. And, and I know Christians, and they're well-meaning Christians, that have these social ideas that, well, it's sinful for us to enjoy these good things when other people don't have them. Well, where is that in Scripture? In fact, we have the opposite that when God does give us these good things, what should we do? We should be thankful for them. We should enjoy them. We shouldn't hold, we shouldn't hold contempt for them. A contempt for the gift is contempt toward the, the, the giver. We need to remember that. So we want to make sure that we understand the place of these common and good gifts that we do not allow the gifts of God, these common benefits of this life to derail us from that which is true happiness. Another point I want to make. Many people fail in being truly happy because they have a natural aversion to God. And what do I mean by that? That is, they may consider religion. They don't see religion as necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can do good in the world. But they are just not able to go beyond the means of religion because they have an aversion to God. They don't want to submit to God. The natural man, beloved, the unredeemed man, the unregenerated man has a natural hatred for God. They may enjoy all of the gifts of God and all of the benefits of God, but they can't bring themselves to worship God because they don't want to submit to him. And that's, uh, that is something that is, even in our day, if you listen, and I certainly don't, certainly not recommending it to, to be watch much news at all, but when you listen to the the virtue signaling, the lectures, the moral lectures we receive um, through all of these social justice warriors, it's interesting that the things they want are all the things that God can give satisfaction, peace, joy, but they want them without God. They want all of these things apart from God. And so what did they do? The way they believe they can get them is to take them from others. We want your prosperity. 
We want your land. We want all, all of those things that you look happy with, we desire, and it will make us happy. And of course, it never does. Let me give you a, a passage of scripture that supports the idea. John chapter 6 and verse 26 and 27, 34 and 41, he says, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves, loaves of bread and were filled. You had your stomach filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Verse 34, and then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. It sounds good to us. We want that bread. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 66, and they murmured and went back and walked no more with him. So what does that passage teach us? Well, it teaches us that men want their carnal desires fed. They wanted their stomachs full. They wanted the blessing of this heavenly bread. They just didn't realize that that heavenly bread was Jesus. And they weren't willing to submit to his teachings. They weren't willing to walk with him. They weren't willing to give themselves over to love him even more than they love themselves. They weren't willing to do that. Now the earth is full of this person, isn't it? Our nation is full of this person. We want all of these benefits, but we don't want the God who creates these benefits, who gives us these benefits. You think about Psalm 106, verse 24, to delight in Canaan without delighting in the means to obtain and maintain the promised land. You think about the promised land in heaven. These two things, typical, uh, uh, Canaan being a typical of the kingdom of God and typical of heaven. You know, what was wrong with the Israelites? They did not want to occupy the, the, the promised land if it meant they had to do something. And they had to, that generation had to die out in the wilderness. Why? Because they had no faith. They didn't have faith. Now, brothers, what I'm, brothers and sisters, what I'm teaching you is that faith is instrumental to this happiness and it's the being the only way. There's only one way to this happiness and it's through that saving faith of Christ. People want heaven, but they don't want to do the things that secure that place, their place in heaven. They don't want to tend to the means of grace. They don't want to give themselves over to the worship of God and to the exercise of these graces. They don't want to have to do those things, but they want heaven. Again, they want to be happy. 
And they plow their own path to this happiness. But beloved, it's not real happiness. Now you can never convince them of it. And it's probably not good to do so. You'll just get into a fight about it. Because there are people that are bouncing children on their knees that have not faith. And they display this happiness for having these children, a husband, a family, a job, being able to pay their bills and all of these things, right? But it's counterfeit. They don't know what they don't know. They grope around, the Bible says, without faith, what do men do? They grope in darkness. They grope in darkness. They don't know what they don't know. We should take great delight in having our eyes opened and our hearts opened up to the things of God that we can see the true and real path to this happiness, that we would no longer waste our time in the pursuit of fancies, right? In these, in these counterfeit uh, uh, happy things that we think are going to make us happy, spending our money, spending our time, expending ourselves, our energy, our lives, the pursuit. Listen to me. I can, I'm sad to say of the people that I've seen waste time, their precious time, you don't get it back. You can lose $20 and you can save it back. But you can't lose 20 years and get it back. You can't. People have have wasted, they've invested themselves in, in that which is not true happiness, only to find out years and years, often decades later, that I have wasted my time. Now, by God's grace, he can, in his mercy, redeem the moment, right? And set them on that true path. But I I just, in fact, had a a counseling interaction with a young lady that was in my previous church. And she called needing advice. And she came over and we sat on my porch for several hours and to hear the sad story of a a waste of almost 15 years of her life and wanted my counsel about it. You can't get that back. That's why this, partic- that's why this lesson is so valuable to us this, this evening. It's important. Men can only be truly happy when that happiness comes through the grace of faith on that which God sets before us. Being void of the carnal temporal things, being able to see them for what they are, being able, listen, if the Lord takes the bounty off the table for us with, who have faith in him, who have him as our chief joy and treasure, as our path and highway to holiness is to him, then So what? So what? We may, we're not going to despair. We're we're not going to fall off into a deep depression. It's not to say that we won't temporally be affected by it. Certainly we would. 
But God is our support. He is our joy. And we know that he is our chief happiness. I know it sounds cliche. We talk about it all the time as Christians, but it's a basic essential truth that you can never forget. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's foolish for a man to enjoy a barbecue and think he should give thanks to God. Why would I do that? I, I made this money. I worked hard for it. It's mine. I deserve this. He's foolish. He doesn't understand the world that he lives in. He doesn't understand who resides over this world. He doesn't understand who is the beginning and the end. He doesn't understand there's a reconciliation at the end of time. He doesn't understand these things. They make no sense to him. The natural man, Thomas Manton said, is prejudiced against the true means of happiness. Not happiness, he wants to be happy, but he's prejudiced against the true means of happiness like thanksgiving, worship, dedicating ourselves, having, having the opportunity to use these good things to witness to God's grace and mercy, the goodness that, it, he, that flows from him to his people that others may be able to enjoy as well. He's prejudiced against that. He doesn't just not won't do it. He says, I am not, you know, how that that does not appeal to me whatsoever. In fact, I would never do that. Manton goes on and he talks about these people who prejudice themselves against the means of true happiness. He says, since they cannot have God's happiness, they resolve to be their own caregivers and to make themselves happy as they can enjoy all of these present things to their fullest and, you know, delight, if you will. Point number three is that the pursuit, the wrong path to happiness is costly, is costly. Now, it just talks about one of those things. Now, God is very jealous to what we make as our happiness. And he takes no delight in when we take and put other things before him, other delights, other enjoyments. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14, the preacher says, I have seen the works, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation. The toil, the vexation that comes in the pursuit of happiness apart from God, it's, it's, it's burdensome on a, on a man or a woman. It's tiresome. It's, it wears them out. It's like a, a gear without grease. It just grinds. What do we call what do we call the average work day? A grind. It just grinds us down. And this is the picture of it. He wants to spend it 
all upon his appetites, if you will. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, the preacher says, I said in my heart, go now, I will prove to thee happiness. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. Why is pleasure vanity? Because it's without God. How could Samuel say pleasure is vanity? He was the wealthiest man to live at that time. He had every common benefit, enjoyment. He had 10 times more than many of the kings around him. And yet he says, it's all vanity. Why? Because it's without God. That was his testimony. That was his testimony. The richest man in the world gave the testimony that all of the pleasures of life are vain and vanity without God. What about some application? So that we don't make the same mistakes as many of the people that we have looked at this evening, we too ought to be careful of counterfeit happiness, right? Setting up things in our life that maybe we don't notice, maybe until tonight, that these things have taken priority over the giver that these things have taken priority over our hearts and, and our mind's submission to God, that these things become more important to us than what God thinks of us and what God has truly done for us. We need to be careful of that. Now, why should we never seek these benefits that we've talked about that are good in and of themselves but never make them our chief happiness, whether it's a, 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 a man or a woman, um, a companion, husband, wife, children, a certain type of child, a certain type of uh, church, uh, any job, a certain amount of money, anything doesn't mean you don't work. It doesn't mean you don't work hard. It doesn't mean you don't get pursue advantage. But when they become our chief pursuit, it's a problem. Let me give you the first reason. The first reason is because they cannot satisfy you. They cannot. When you set temporal things before you as your chief happiness, you will constantly be pursuing that thing. You will never be satisfied. It will never fill you up with a sense of satisfaction like God can. They cannot do to you and for you what God created you to do with him. They cannot. You weren't created to be happy solely, independently with these things. You were created for him. You are his and he is yours. We are more, beloved. Your life is more than food and drink. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, for this reason, our Lord says, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, we often interpret that as to say, well, I'm just glad to have clothes on, but even the, the people find their, their enjoyment. You know, we, wanna, we want nice things, nothing wrong with nice things, but when those nice things take the priority that somehow they do something for us that God's grace doesn't, our life is more than that. They cannot provide a lasting um, uh, contentment to your life. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. I want to read the longer portion here. Isaiah chapter 55. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. I mean, I think it is reasonable to extract from that that Isaiah the prophet is using these things. Why are you in pursuit of these things that truly can't do what you seek after when only God is the answer? I can't tell you how many times I've been either in an evangelizing situation or even a counseling situation that I've interrupted the person that's talking and saying, you really are seeking after God. You just don't want to admit it. You know you need to submit to God. And, 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 and even in this last occasion that I just spoke of and in other occasions, I've had people just break down weeping and going, I know I'm at war with God. I know, but I don't want to submit to God. But you want all the things that only God can give. And, all, and they had a lot of stuff, and, but it didn't do anything for them. It didn't really satisfy them. 1 Timothy warns us in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 of the temptation of riches. He says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That particular verse comes in my point number two, and that is love for these benefits, these graces, right? These common graces that God bestows upon the world. Let me say this about common grace. Maybe put it in the picture for you. God causes it to rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous, right? He allows the crops of the unrighteous to grow. 
He allows them to harvest those crops and to take it to the market and sell and build houses, buy clothes, and have barbecues. Both. I want you to think about how good our God is. Because imagine a world that was constantly under the distressing pressure of unbelief, how miserable the whole earth would be because of unbelievers. And you think about it. You know what it would be like to have mass crowds and societies and towns who have fallen into depression, dark psychosis, distraught with no hope of any future because they were under the wrath of God. But God in his common grace allows the earth to benefit even from some of these good things so that it's a place that's, that we can live in. Now I want you to consider that. That God allows for the enjoyment of these things, though it's temporal, though it's counterfeit, though even the plowing of the wicked is sin, plowing is a good thing because it's through plowing that, again, what? We earn money. We can fix our car. We can save for retirement. We can support our church. We can tithe. We can support missionaries. We can do good things. We can have birthday parties. We can do all these things. The the plowing of the wicked is sin. But God still allows for the man plowing in unbelief to have some common prosperity, even though it's temporal. And that's why it's a trap. That's why we don't ever want to look at our lives and go, I I know God. God favors me. Look at these things. That's not the litmus test on whether or not we know God or not. Right? Because there are a lot of unbelievers that have things. When we love the benefits over the giver, we defile ourselves. We're defiling ourselves. It turns to bitterness. And it's like drinking poison because, again, think about wasting a decade of your life. Think about wasting your savings. Think about all of these pursuits that just didn't pan out in satisfying you and making you happy. They can be destructive if you're not careful. When we pursue the benefits of this world that we live in apart from God in that grace of faith, we will defile defile ourselves and like first timothy 6 9 and 10 stated that last that last couple of clauses the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows that's apart from the greed that's apart from the love of money these are all the other accompanying things that they have defiled themselves with It's a defiling thing. Number three, 
because these benefits, these common enjoyments are not sanctified through saving faith, they increase our trouble and sorrow. They increase. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 23, For all the days of man are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest, and it is vanity. It is vanity. Proverbs 21, verse 4, A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. So that we would not prejudice ourselves against true happiness, men think it's, it's happiness to live without this yoke of religion. They want to be free. They want to say what they want, think what they want. They want to do what they want without any kind of constraints. And I could say this. Let me say this about constraints. I want to talk about benefits a little bit, manners. We need more social manners in our culture, don't we? We need more common respect for one another. That's a benefit. You know why? Because it's an, it's an enjoyment. Now, you, you can correct me if you wish, but it's a great delight when we can go out into public and, be dem- and have demonstrated with us common grace of manners. It's a delight and enjoyment to be around others reciprocating those manners, and it's a great community thing. We have become so crass, so base, and so vulgar. We think we have the right to say whatever we want, when we want, however we want to say it. Psalm 2 and verse 3, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from among us. That's what the unbeliever says about religion, about God, about his word. So what should we do? What can we do? I'm going to give you three things in closing. Number one, submit your mind and your heart to Scripture. That's the purpose of Psalm 119. Let me read some other passages to you. Proverbs 23 and verse 4, labor not to be rich. Cease from your own wisdom, but seek direction from God by his word and spirit. God only can determine who is the blessed man and whose hand alone it is to make us blessed. God will determine as we labor diligently and faithfully, respectfully with our work as unto the Lord. God will certainly determine the range and the breadth and the length of the benefits he gives us and allows us to use. All good things, beloved, are not, not, are not always good. I, I, one of the best illustrations of this is a, a professional athlete. Money will not make you a better person. It might and typically will make you worse because it will provide for you the means to exercise lust and desires and pursuits that you never could have done before. 
And we see that. Proverbs 28 and verse 6. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Now, Proverbs 28.6 isn't promoting poverty. All it is saying is, rather than this, rather than all of these benefits in perversity, it would be better to be poor and have faith. Ecclesiastes verse four or chapter four, verse 13, better a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who will not be admonished no more. Number two, number one, submit your mind and your heart to Scripture. And I use the word submit purposely, submit to it. It's not just about reading and it's not just about memorizing, it's about submission to it. Number two, make saving faith a priority. And what do I mean by make saving faith a priority? What I mean by it is, you are to exercise all the means of grace in relationship to strengthening your faith, building up your faith, edifying that faith you have in Jesus Christ, making use of all of the means, the ways in which God says prayer, studying scripture, listening to the sermon in faith, in belief. Hebrews 11 verse 6 but without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Isn't that beautiful? But we see the principle that I've been harping on so, for so long that God sets before us these, these warnings and these rewards, what, to motivate us to faith and greater faith, stronger faith. Number three, patiently wait upon the Lord to work in you. Here's what I mean by this. Oftentimes the teaching comes first. The doctrine comes first. It's easy to know what we could should believe, right? But it's in due season that God conforms us to the teaching. Does everybody understand that? The teaching, the doctrine comes first. The practice comes later and harder. And, and, and oftentimes it's in a season of your life where you learn a valuable principle. And that's the way it is. I mean, it's it's... There's no way around it. Many times we are doctrinally right in point of blessedness, but practically we are wrong because we don't carry it out. Look at Psalm 49. I, I really was conflicted about what verses to use and I just thought, let's just turn to the psalm and 
and look at it. You can see in the heading of, of my Bible, it's the foolish, uh, the folly of trusting riches. So you can see it probably has an application. Verse 10, for he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. But men, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Do not be afraid when man becomes rich, when the glory of his houses is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not uh, descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself. And he shall go to the generation of his fathers and they will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perishes. Beloved, that's a picture of a person that is in pursuit of the happiness all the wrong way. And that's everything that Psalm 119 is, is directing us against. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk, who have their manner of life in the law of the Lord. Let's pray, and then I'll take any questions you may have. And Father in heaven, do bless this word tonight, and we pray that it would strike each and every one of us, Lord, to be sober-minded as we examine ourselves and we look at those things in our lives that are meaningful to us, and rightly so. But Lord, that these things would never exceed your place that they would never take your place. They would never, Lord, control us in a way that would keep us from earnestly, wholeheartedly serving you. For you, O oh Lord, are our great delight. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. Lord, you are that blessed way. You are the means of our happiness. And Lord, as we commit ourselves, submit ourselves. And as we wait upon you, Lord, conform our lives to the teaching, our understanding, the doctrine, even tonight, and in the many other things that we know and understand, that we would become complete and mature in the faith. Now, I pray that, Lord, for everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen.